1: Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. What you're about to hear is part one of this episode. Part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. Would you like to hear this episode all at once the day it drops? Sign up for Slate Plus. You can try it for a month for just one dollar. And it supports not only this show, but all of Slate's acclaimed journalism and podcasts. Just go to slate.com slash hitparadeplus. You'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives. Plus, Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes with guest interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Once again, to join, that's slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Thanks. And now, please enjoy part one of this Hit Parade episode. Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine, about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, Do you recognize this funk instrumental I'm playing? This is The Soul Searchers, led by Washington DC go-go music pioneer Chuck Brown, with their 1974 jam, Ashley's Roach Clip. Don't feel bad if it's not ringing a bell yet, it wasn't a big chart hit. But part of this song was a hit, part of many, many hits. In just a few seconds, we're going to hear a drum break that should be instantly familiar if you listened to hip hop about 30 to 35 years ago. Here it comes. The Ashley's Roach Clip Drum Break is a formative beat in rap history, sampled on dozens of tracks. It's the beat that powered hip-hop classics by Golden Age rappers T LaRocque, Eric B & Rakim, Slick Rick, Chill Rob G, The Ghetto Boys, Tupac, and Ice Cube, among many others. And it also anchored several big hits by, well these guys, who, I guess you could say, do rap. This is Girl You Know It's True, the debut global smash by Millie Vanilli. Nominally, that's the name of the dance pop duo Rob Pilatus and Fabrice Morvan, a pair of model gorgeous men who danced energetically, almost manically, running in place in biker shorts, flailing their dreadlocks, even taking running leaps into each other, smashing their chests together. On MTV, in concert, and even at the Grammy Awards, Rob and Fab presented themselves as Millie Vanilli. But of course, as is now infamous, Pilatus and Morvan weren't singing or rapping on any of the hits credited to Millie Vanilli, a name that is now equated in the public's mind with musical fraud. This, despite the fact that, whether we all want to admit it or not, those of us who were alive in 1989 were listening to a whole lot of Millie Vanilli. no act on the charts of that year not bon Jovi, Bobby Brown, Janet Jackson or Madonna had more number 1 hits than Milli Vanilli whoever was actually vocalizing on the records this german musical project succeeded beyond anyone's imaginings including the man who dreamed the whole thing up a guy who'd already tasted fame more than a decade earlier
0: she's crazy like ooh.
1: Producer, musician, and pop impresario Frank Farian had scored a string of hits in the 70s with his Eurodisco act Boney M, but none of their singles became big U.S. hits, which is what made Farian's success in America with his 80s group so stunning. We bought more Milli Vanilli recordings than any country in the world. Millie Vanilli caught lightning in a bottle, showing up when the charts were undergoing a rap-driven metamorphosis. Some of the hit acts rapping in the late 80s sounded authentic to the streets, while others dabbled in rap, in songs that were really more pop. Too hot to handle, too cold to hold, they the team behind Milli Vanilli took full advantage of this early crossover moment. They pilfered from everywhere, from the music of the '60s to the underground hip hop and club music of the '80s. Yes, the story of Millie Vanilli is one of both theft and fraud. But it was a fraud the whole country and much of the world embraced. Until it all got just a little out of control.
0: And the winner is. What? <laughs> Millie Vanilli.
1: Even if many of us would prefer to bury the music of Milli Vanilli in some deep memory hole, its popularity does explain something about where the sound of pop was headed at the turn of the 1990s. It's easy now to forget that, at the time, legitimate media outlets, industry executives, and even songwriters took this group somewhat seriously. Seriously enough that a certain hit-generating, Oscar-nominated songwriter would give Millie Vanilli their most enduring single. Blame
0: it on the rain that was falling, falling. blame
1: it on the rain. And that's where your hit parade marches today, the week ending November 25th, 1989, when Blame It on the Rain by Millie Vanilli reached number one on the Hot 100. It was the third straight chart topper by the duo, uh, group, uh, project, and the fourth of their five top five hits, affirming that Milli Vanilli was one of the top pop acts of the year. It was also the second consecutive number one by a celebrated songwriter who's still generating hits today. And that's just one of many interesting footnotes in the story of this massive pop swindle. One with a bit more of a legacy than you might imagine. How exactly were we all seduced by Millie Vanilli? Now, this song might sound familiar if you've been on TikTok lately, or maybe if you're a video game player who enjoys the music game Just Dance 2. It's a 1978 single that's reappeared on several Billboard charts just this year, even though it was never a hit in America in its heyday.
0: Rasputin,
1: Rasputin. or perhaps I should say Ra Ra Rasputin, given the way the word is sung, was a hit across Europe back in 1978, including number one in Germany and Austria, and number two in the UK. The song is named after the 19th century Russian mystic Grigori Rasputin, and it tells mythical, likely apocryphal stories of his healing powers and romantic prowess, including romancing the Russian Tsarina. Its tempo suggests a Russian Prizyadka, or squat dance cadence. If you've danced to it on Just Dance 2, all the moves you were imitating were watered-down Slavic folk dances. And its rhythm guitar hook is even played on balalaikas. This, despite the fact that no actual Russians were involved in its creation. Credited to the Eurodisco group Boney M, Rasputin was written by two Germans and an Austrian, and its co lead vocals are by a pair of Jamaican British women.
0: It was a shame how he carried on.
1: In short, virtually everything about this song is kind of phony and pretty irresistible, which makes Rasputin a metaphor for the entire career of its creator, German singer, songwriter, producer, and trickster Frank Farian, the hitmaker who, like a cat, seems to have nine lives. So does this song although Rasputin never cracked the hot 100 just this year it was the subject of a tiktok challenge both in america and globally and a 2021 remix by british dj majestic made the top 10 of billboard's dance and electronic songs chart and its global xus chart there was a So, that's more royalties flowing in the direction of Frank Farian, even into the 2020s. If you've ever heard some version of the Milli Vanilli story—for example, infamously, they were the subject of the first-ever episode of VH1's tell-all biography series, Behind the Music, way back in 1997— You might think the mastermind behind pop music's most famous fraud would have been run out of the music business, tarred and feathered. Quite the contrary. Frank Farian kept producing and co-writing with dance pop acts for decades. If you put on a radio station right now that plays older dance pop from a couple of decades ago, like New York's WKTU, or pull up a vintage dance music mix on Spotify, there's a pretty good chance you will eventually hear a Frank Farian production. In his day, Farian was like the title character of what makes Sammy run, an irrepressible hustler on the make. And what made Frankie run was a hunger for hits, by any means necessary, which made him a good fit for the music business.
0: Don't call me Scarface.
1: This is, essentially, the first song Frank Farian poached and turned into a hit for himself. It wouldn't be the last. Al Capone is a 1964 single from Jamaican ska and rocksteady pioneer Cecil Bustamante Campbell, a.k.a. Prince Buster. Al Capone! By
0: 1967,
1: Al Capone was a hit in England, and it was heard by a young German fan of British and American pop, the man born Franz Reuter in Kern, Germany had already changed his name to Frankie Farian. The then-25-year-old had quit his job as a cook and was trying to release records under that name, including covers of U.S. and U.K. hits. But nothing clicked for Frankie Farian until the mid-'70s, when he interpolated Prince Buster's hit into this song. This single was called Baby Do You Wanna Bump, and this time, for an artist named Frankie Farian decided to hide behind a made-up group that he called Boney M. Now this might seem like Farian's first act of chicanery, but to be fair, rock and pop history is littered with examples of made-up groups having to become real groups after a hit record. For example, in 1962, L.A.-based trumpeter and future a and label boss Herb Alpert, who, by the way, has no Latin heritage whatsoever, scored a left-field top-ten hit with The Lonely Bull. He recorded the song by himself, overdubbing his trumpet to resemble a full group of mariachis. And he credited the single to the authentic-sounding, but totally made-up, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. It wasn't until Alpert and his group scored multiple hits that he formed an actual Tijuana Brass, which went on to score five number one albums. Or consider this bubblegum classic talked about The Archies, a fictional garage rock combo based upon the famed comic book characters and their 60s Saturday morning cartoon in our Credence Clearwater revival episode of Hit Parade. Their smash, Sugar Sugar, was one of the many singles that prevented John Fogerty's band from getting past number two on the Hot 100. As a band, The Archies was composed of real-life session musicians and they scored real hits on the actual Billboard charts. After Sugar Sugar became the top-selling single of 1969, the Archies became a regular combo, recording several more albums and scoring a handful of additional hits. One more example, also from 1969. When songwriter and producer Paul Leka recorded Na Na Hey Hey, Kiss Him Goodbye in 1969 with a pair of his singer friends, he intended it as a throwaway B-side, but the label wanted him to put it out as an A-side, so Leka gave it the made-up group name Steam. When Kiss Him Goodbye wound up a number one smash by the end of that year, Leka, had to recruit an actual band from Bridgeport, Connecticut and rename them Steam just so they could record and tour. So yeah, releasing singles under a phony band name that later becomes an actual band was a well-established, if slightly shady, tactic by the mid-70s, when Frank Farian recorded Baby Do You Wanna Bump. After the single was a hit in Holland and Belgium, Faryon turned Boney M into a real group. He recruited a troupe of West Indian vocalists, all people of color, three British women, Liz Mitchell, Marsha Barrett, and Maisie Williams, and Bobby Farrell, originally from Aruba. That wasn't the fishy part. What was more slippery was only two of these members, Liz Mitchell and Marsha Barrett, actually sang on Boney M recordings, alongside Farrion himself, who never appeared on stage. Farrion's very Teutonic German-accented vocals were mimed by frontman Bobby Farrell, and Maisie Williams, a former model, also lip-synced on stage. Improbable as this Euro British Caribbean formula sounded on paper, this version of Boney M really took off.
0: Like Daddy,
1: cool? Daddy Cool, the group's second single, became a hit across Europe in 1976. With 2020 hindsight, If you watch Farrell in Boney M's early TV appearances, disco dancing maniacally, encouraged by Farian to flail his limbs all about, you can see the seeds of what Milli Vanilli would become more than a decade later. Daddy Cool kicked off a remarkable streak of hits for Boney M. In addition to Frank Farian's native Germany, where the group unsurprisingly scored a string of number one hits, and across continental Europe, Boney M were amazingly popular in the United Kingdom. Frank Farian's brainchild scored nine straight UK top ten hits, a special delight for a German man who grew up idolizing the British charts. This epic streak included a Eurodisco cover of Bobby Hebb's soul jazz standard, "Sunny," which became the first Boney M single to crack the UK top three. Sunny, honey,
0: honey. My life was
1: ma Baker, whose ma ma hook was, decades later, borrowed by Lady Gaga for her hit Poker Face.
0: My baker, her ma, 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 ma. My
1: baker, rivers of Babylon, which sold over 2 million copies in England alone, and still ranks as one of the UK's seven best-selling singles of all time.
0: Of Babylon, there we sat down.
1: And Mary's Boy Child which we played in our U.K. Christmas Number 1s edition of Hit Parade. Boney M.'s cover of the Calypso Christmas Classic, made famous in the 50s by Harry Belafonte, was Britain's official Christmas Number 1 of 1978.
0: my child? Jesus Christ was born on Christmas Day
1: fact, during that UK holiday season, Mary's Boy Child sold 1.6 million copies in just four weeks. It still ranks among the three best-selling holiday hits in British history, alongside Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas and Wham's Last Christmas. Yes, seriously, Boney M. They were that popular. At least they were on that side of the Atlantic. Boney M might have been just a little too exotic for U.S. tastes. They cracked the American Top 40 only once. Casey Kasem counted it down. The countdown continues now with Boney M. Their first hit song was a former number one song in England. At number 30, Rivers of Babylon.
0: By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down.
1: That First hit was also their last in the U.S. This American disinterest would prove ironic in retrospect when Frank Farian's other musical project took off a dozen years later. As for Boney M's British and European hit streak, it finally began to tail off as disco fizzled on the charts. When Gotta Go Home just missed the top ten in England in late 1979... M's days as hitmakers were largely over. Farrion did continue to produce albums and singles under the Boney M name well into the 1980s. He even let Bobby Farrell vocalize, for real, on a track or two. On a 1984 Boney M comeback single called Happy Song, Farrell performed an ungainly rap break. Which again tonally foreshadowed the sound of Millie Vanilli. On,
0: boys, good, good
1: Happy Song was not a major revival for Boney M. It was only a top 10 hit in Germany. But by then, Farian had already diversified his clientele. After making the acquaintance of several members of 80s American hitmakers, Toto, Farian hired three players from Toto to record with some others he borrowed from a couple of UK bands to form a short-lived supergroup named after himself. Frank Farian Corporation, which was shortened to Far Corporation on the LP sleeve. Far Corporation are an odd footnote in chart history, the only act ever to crack the Hot 100 with a version of the classic rock song Stairway to Heaven. Led Zeppelin, famously, did not issue the track as a retail single in 1971. ¶¶ Far Corporation's version of Stairway reached a lowly number 89 on the U.S. chart, although it was briefly a top 10 hit in England, also a first for that song in the U.K. The band only lasted one album. Around the same time, Farian was also producing American singer Meatloaf, Yes, that meatloaf. You will recall from our prior Hit Parade episode about songwriter Jim Steinman that Meat spent the 80s professionally estranged from his mentor. And by the way, while I am mentioning Jim Steinman, rest in peace, Jim. Meatloaf's project with Frank Farian did nothing to reverse his fortunes during the Steinman less wilderness years. The Farian produced 1986 LP, Blind Before I Stop, sold poorly. It generated one single, a histrionic duet with John Parr of St. Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion fame, that just missed the UK Top 30 and didn't make the Hot 100 at all. For Ferry, even as the 80s was a fallow period hit-wise, these experiments with new collaborators did eventually point him in the direction of his next breakthrough. It all started with a pair of remakes, First, a cover of this old 70s British hit, and next, the poaching of this mid-80s American club record, which might sound very familiar.
0: Ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty? Wondery and Tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Join host DJ Fuchs and his trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as they deliver remixes of fables and folktales, rhythm and rhymes, and fun spins on classics as old as time. Grab the whole family and get ready to groove, because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip-hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In 1985,
1: Boney M, still limping along with much smaller hits, recorded a remake of Dreadlock Holiday, a 1978 Cod reggae hit by the white British rock band Ten C.C., Boney M's remake sounded like a product of its time, very 80s, and it was pretty much a flop. Because Frank Farian would never give up on an idea, by 1987, he arranged a remix of the Dreadlock remake. And he brought in a new vocalist to add a rap to the
0: song. This is a rap, to a good friend, but we're sorry to say, this rap is too
1: Charles Shaw was an African-American former military man who was stationed in Germany and took up session work there as a vocalist. He did the rap on the Dreadlock Holiday remix. And Frank Farian liked the sound of the American's voice. Around this time, a pair of German DJs, professional acquaintances of Frank's who would tip him off to Hot Club Records, passed Farian a copy of this American import 12 inch single. To Farian, it sounded like a smash in the making.
0: I'm in love,
1: Newmarks was a Baltimore DJ crew who had written "Girl, You Know It's True" in 1986. The single was only a minor club hit for Newmarks, but it was doing relatively well in Europe. By the way, another fun footnote: among the members of Newmarks was future Def Jam label executive Kevin Lyles. The same Kevin Lyles who, in the late 90s, would sign rapper DMX to Def Jam and generate all of X's big hits. And by the way, rest in peace DMX. This is not the last time our story of Millie Vanilli that goofy group of Eurodance pop hit purveyors, will cross paths with more legit American rap. Indeed, and I realize this assertion might get me in trouble with hardcore hip-hop heads, Milli Vanilli played an undeniable role, however dubious, in mainstreaming rap for pop fans in the late 80s. Of course, by the time Frank Farian heard that Newmark's track, rap had broken through on the charts, both in the U.S. and across Europe, thanks to Run-DMC's smash 1986 remake of Aerosmith's Walk This This Way.
0: Moreover, by 1987
1: and 88, Hip hop sampling and turntablism were infiltrating the clubs and, in turn, the pop charts, as on the seminal smash by Mars, pump up the volume. Additionally, some R&B stars, like former New Edition member Bobby Brown, were sprinkling their New Jack swing jams with frequent rap breaks. And even the harder-edged, more street-savvy rap was moving toward dance
0: music. Paid in Full was the title track of the seminal
1: 1987 debut album by Eric B. and Rakim. The latter still considered one of the greatest MCs in rap history. Paid in Full already had an irresistible, tongue-tripping flow in its original version, but the track really went global when British DJ duo Coldcut remixed Paid in Full in a now-legendary 7 Minutes of Madness mix. Cold Cut's version added film dialogue, as well as needle drops of James Brown, Israeli singer Ofra Haza, and other cuts by Eric B. and Rakim themselves. But one thing Cold Cut didn't mess with, if anything, they pumped it up, was Paid in Full's irresistible beat, the legendary sample of the Soul Searcher's Ashley's Roach clip. Cold Cut's version of Paid in Full reached number three on Billboard's Club Play chart, the biggest hit Eric B. and Rakim would ever have on any Billboard chart that wasn't the Rap Songs chart. By the way, the duo's DJ, Eric B., reportedly hated the Cold Cut remix. Rakim, the MC, loved it. In addition to its hit status in U.S. clubs, the cold-cut remix of Paid in Full was also a chart smash in England, Germany, and about a dozen other countries. So it wasn't a big leap for Frank Farian to hear that New Marks club track. I'm love girl. i so girl. I'm
0: just a love girl. This is true.
1: And for him to go into the studio with an array of his favorite session musicians, throw the Ashley's Roach Clip beat on top of it, and turn it into this. Barion had transformed Girl You Know It's True from catchy to catnip. But the crew he'd assembled to record the ditty, including rapper Charles Shaw and session singers John Davis and Brad Howe, all of them approaching middle age, didn't strike Farian as hip enough to be the image of his new rap-pop project. That's when Farian decided he could do with this track what he'd already done with Boney M and Bobby Farrell more than a decade before. He had the song, it was recorded and already in the camp. He just needed the faces. And Farian had just met two young guys with pretty faces who could be his new Bobby Farrells. He said, look, we have a problem here. We spend money on the single already,
0: you know? So basically, he said he needed an act. Since I'm an actor, an entertainer, a model, he needed an act who poses as a singer.
1: German-born Robert Pilatus and French-born Fabrice Morvan, a.k.a. Rob and Fab, were models and dancers who had met in Munich in 1988 and bonded over their shared status as people of color in the German club scene and their desire for fame. That eagerness led Rob and Fab to sign what they later called a devil's pact with Frank Farian to be the faces of Millie Vanilli. Now, the story of Rob and Fab, both the hilarity and the tragedy, has been told and retold. Most versions of the Millie Vanilli story focus on this aspect, Rob and Fab's naive entry into a deal with Frank Farian, and the toll Millie Vanilli's boom and bust took on them. This, indeed, is why Millie Vanilli was the topic of that first behind the music, a classic tale about the price of fame, including elements of sex and drugs. This is all very compelling. I'm not going to pretend it's not. But I won't focus much on these aspects of the story. We'll link on the show page to the BTM episode, which does an exhaustive, frankly, exhausting job, telling Rob and Fab's story. We at Hit Parade have our own behind-the-music story to tell, not only about the music itself, but about how it became such a massive hit, even despite Frank Farian's subterfuge and Rob and Fab's play-acting. However scant, Rob and Fab did have some musical experience— both had tried session work, and Pilatus had even backed up a song that, in one very high profile arena, had been a massive success Germany's 1987 entry in the Eurovision Song Contest, a track by the band Wind, called, forgive my terrible German, Lass de Son in dein Herz, or Let the Sun into Your Heart.
0: Lass die Sonne in dein Herz.
1: You can even see Rob Pilatus singing in at least one version of the Wind performance video. The song placed second in Eurovision 87, making Germany that year's runner-up behind Ireland. Maybe Rob was hired by Wind for the same reason Frank Farian later hired him, his good looks. It probably wasn't his singing voice. Most accounts of Milli Vanilli claim that, between the two young men, Fabrice Morvan had the greater musical talent. And virtually all accounts agree neither Rob nor Fab had much musical skill when they auditioned for Farian. But like Bobby Farrell miming Farian's Boney M vocals back in 1976, Rob and Fab looked convincing and striking. Did they look like rappers or even r and singers? Hardly. But they were the right combination of pretty, athletic, exotic, and energetic to carry off Milli Vanilli. And speaking of energetic, that name, there are multiple stories about where Milli Vanilli came from. The most repeated story, originally claimed in the act's publicity materials, was that Milli Vanilli means positive energy in Turkish. Total hogwash. But there have been so many other folk etymologies for Milli Vanilli. A defunct disco in Berlin. A riff on the pop band Screedy Politi. A nickname Frank Farian gave his office assistant. I tend to think that last one might be the right one. Wherever the name came from, it was catchy and didn't pretend to be hard edged. Milli Vanilli was going to be a pure delivery system for hip hop era musical hooks. In the video that catapulted Millie Vanilli to fame, Rob and Fab, dressed in big jackets, biker shorts, and boots, play their parts expertly, striking poses, running in place, and swinging their dreadlocks, a move that looked really cool in slow-mo. A band mimes along behind them, including a drummer just barely approximating the Ashley's Roach Clip sample. Fab takes the harder vocal part, lip dubbing Charles Shaw's rapid fire rap. And Rob sings the Davis and Howe melodies when he's not leaping, kicking, or executing a split. Probably most important, the duo give meaningful stares to the camera when singing I Love You. It was silly, but not much sillier than most of what was on MTV at the time.
0: Girl, when you and with your positive emotion,
1: love, Given Frank Farian's track record in Europe and the minor success of the original Newmark's 12-inch in European clubs, Millie Vanilli's version of Girl You Know It's True broke in Europe first in 1988. It was number one in Germany for six weeks in August and September of that year. The track was slower to break in England, where Boney M did so well in the 70s, but before the end of the year, Girl had risen to number three on the UK charts. A full Milli Vanilli album, titled All or Nothing, was released in November on the German label Hansa. In the UK, an acid house label, Cool Tempo, picked up the album for distribution. All or Nothing was filled with tracks that emulated the sound of the smash first single. It's got to be. Show when on the this is around when America started to take notice. Clive Davis, was having a good late 80s. Arista Records, the label Davis had founded in the mid-70s, was commanding the American hit parade with a spate of danceable diva pop from the likes of Taylor Dane, Exposé, and, of course, Clive's flagship artist, Whitney Houston. The line on Clive Davis has always been that the man has ears, he can hear a hit. And even with his limited knowledge of either rap or Eurodance music, Davis could tell Girl You Know It's True was a smash. His team signed Frank Farian's project to an American distribution deal. But being the hands-on executive he is, Davis insisted the American version of Milli Vanilli's album would swap out some tracks. So long as Davis wouldn't send any of his Arista executives out to Germany to watch Frank Farian work, Frank, desperate to keep his Milli Vanilli secret, readily agreed.
0: It's your thing
1: Do what you wanna do for example, Davis proposed that Millie Vanilli record an R&B classic, Americans Would Know Well. The Isley Brothers' 1969 hit It's Your Thing. Farion's team gladly obliged. It's
0: your thing. Do what you wanna do now?
1: Davis also passed Team Farion a song he had been given by Diane Warren a superstar American songwriter who'd already generated multiple chart-topping hits. Warren was herself on a hot streak, having scored number ones just in the last two years for rebooted 60s band Starship... rebooted 70s hitmakers Chicago. The American version of the Milli Vanilli album would be titled after its lead single, Girl, You Know It's True. And that single, On Arista, made its debut on the Hot 100 the first week of January 1989. It was a good time to drop a track that leaned in the general direction of American rap. Rising on the charts at that very moment was West Coast rapper Tone Loke with his horny smash Wild Thing, which, one month later, would peak on the chart at number two. Like Wild Thing, Girl You Know It's True would help make rap palatable to middle America. The Milli Vanilli single opened at number 83 on the Hot 100 and rose steadily for the next two months, cracking the top 10 in its 10th week, the top 5 a week later. Finally, in early April, Girl You Know It's True topped out at number two, the same peak Tone Loke had reached two months earlier, and Millie Vanilli might have gone all the way if they hadn't been sandwiched between a chart-topping ballad by The Bangles... And, at number three, a rising hit by Swedish pop duo Roxette, which would leap to number one the following week, blocking Millie Vanilli.
0: So yeah, early 1989
1: was not the edgiest time on the pop charts. And of course, Girl You Know It's True wasn't edgy either. But here was the remarkable thing. One month before it peaked, Billboard launched its first ever Hot Rap Singles chart, based on sales reports from retailers of their top selling rap singles. And guess what appeared on Hot Rap Singles in its very first week, sandwiched between Kid and Play at number four? Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock at number six.
0: this is what you want. get on the dance floor.
1: Yep, you guessed it, Millie Vanilla. I'm a too girl, cause Hi. I'm on my mind. You're the one I think about most every time. So, okay, maybe record retailers weren't sure what to call this dance pop single with rapping on it in March of 1989. But the panel of stores reporting to Billboard's new rap chart included black-owned retailers who also contributed to the magazine's R&B chart, where, by the way, Milli Vanilli were also charting that week, peaking at number three, between top five hits by Levert and Anita Baker. Girl, You Know It's True was a legit crossover smash. Uh The Girl You Know It's True album debuted on the charts in late March of 89. Within a month, it had soared into the top 20 and gone gold. To take it to platinum, Arista Records didn't mess around. They dropped a second single that was a near-carbon copy of the first one. Baby Don't Forget My Number used the exact same Ashley's Roach Clip beat on the chorus as Girl You Know It's True. It had the same wrapped verses and sung chorus formula as the prior hit, and its melody was like Girls Gone Even Poppy. Baby Don't Forget My Number flew into the top 10 on both the R&B and pop charts in just two months. With a second hit now all over the radio, the Girl You Know It's True album rose into the top 10 and went platinum. And for the week ending July 1st, Millie Vanilli had their first chart topper in America, as Baby Don't Forget My Number went the distance on the Hot 100. Having scored their first number one, Clive Davis's team at Aristo wanted to see if Milli Vanilli could survive a sonic changeup—a ballad. This was a typical move for a pop act, leading off with an up-tempo cut or two and then downshifting. The summer of '89, in particular, was awash in ballads, with syrupy number ones by everyone from New Kids on the Block. to Richard
0: Marx you go whatever you do I will be right here waiting for
1: you Frank Farian's team had indeed written a Millie Vanilli ballad with the rather obvious title I'm gonna miss you but they hadn't tried it as a single anywhere in the world yet the American label went for it and to doubly ensure its success, when they issued it as a single, they put Millie Vanilli's favorite word in front of the title, Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You. Featuring yet another video starring Rob and Fab, this time shot in black and white, in tight muscle t-shirts, brooding at the camera, Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You was an easy smash. It was the Hot 100's highest new entry the first week of August, and it rose quickly. Millie Vanilli were now a known quantity to radio programmers. By mid-September, Millie Vanilli had its second straight number one and third straight top two hit. there was nothing I could do to make you stay. I'm gonna miss you. Something odd had now happened to Millie Vanilli. They were officially more successful in America than anywhere else in the world. Call it the magic touch of Clive Davis's promotion machine, but the group hadn't scored a second number one anyplace else. Moreover, the same week, Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You, rose to number one on the Hot 100, the Girl You Know It's True album also reached number one on the album chart. That was better than the All or Nothing album had done anywhere in Europe. Millie Vanilli started receiving superstar-level opportunities. Before the summer was over, they had been invited out on the road by MTV. The channel's dance music show, Club MTV, was launching its first package tour. Among the acts on the bill were rapper Tone Loke. Before he was much, much meaner, but now all the poodles run to my house for the funky coma data. St. Paul, Minnesota techno pop act Information Society.
0: I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind.
1: And Paula Abdul, one of the biggest new pop acts of the year and the only artist scoring as many number ones that year as Millie Vanilli. Rob and Fab had broken into the big time. They loved their superstar status, arriving in limos, partying with scores of women, making fans scream. The Club MTV tour should have been a high point. Unfortunately, it was also the place where this now infamous incident
0: happened. I wanted to die.
1: When we come back, the jig is almost up for Rob Pilatus, Fabrice Morvan, and Frank Farian's Long Con. But Millie Vanilli weren't through scoring hits or winning prizes they shouldn't have. And I
0: never will.
1: Non-Slate Plus listeners will hear the rest of this episode in less than two weeks. For now, I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Hip Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Malanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja, and we also had help from Rosemary Belson. June Thomas is the senior managing producer, and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. We'll see you for part two in just a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on marching on the wand. I'm Chris Melanphy. I'm miss you the love I feel for you This is the story of the wand. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping.